Well, hello again and welcome to the last in this series of Tree Lady Talks. Sharon, we've got to the end. Well, it's been really good. We've kind of got to a fake end because you know what we're doing, don't you? We've got lots of episodes in collaboration with Trees, People and the Built Environment Conference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've started to interview people um, with the idea that they'd be short and snappy interviews, but they're so interesting. They're just as long as our normal episodes. So actually, you won't notice, folks, that we're having a break because we're not really. Sounds like I'm not getting a break either then. No. Well, it's so much fun, isn't it? Oh, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) The subject of today's podcast is Green Blue Urban, and they are establishing the future urban landscape, so extols their website, and they are helping to create sustainable urban landscapes for future generations by providing green infrastructure solutions to landscape architects, urban designers, civil engineers and contractors. And once again, this is another bit of joined up thinking that we've had across all these podcasts. It all links up, doesn't it? It does. It's been about collaboration all the way through. And I really enjoyed talking to Howard Gray because he's been there for a long time. It says in his bio that he's been planting trees in urban settings for 40 years, full of enthusiasm, youthful enthusiasm. And I really learnt a lot from speaking to him and, and some of their newer work I hadn't heard of. So I hope people enjoy this episode and learn a bit more about what can be achieved in our crowded urban streets. And check out the last line in his dream scenario, because I think that will surprise you. Anyway, let's get straight on. Here's Howard Gray from Green Blue Urban in episode 15 of the Tree Lady Talks. Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks. And I'm Sharon Durdent-Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent-Hollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Tree Lady Talks. Thank you very much for joining us, Howard. Um, Perhaps you could start off telling us a little bit about yourself and about Green Blue Urban. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Sharon. It's a great privilege to come on to one of your talks. Um, I'm Howard Gray. I'm a very fortunate man in that I live in the Weald of Kent, which is an area where there's still a lot of trees. And, um, a couple of hundred yards from my house, we have still um, what's an ancient woodland, uh, which, uh, which is open to the public. Um, and I don't count myself as a tree hugger, but I'm an urban tree enthusiast. My intention is to try and leave this planet at least as green as it was when I came to it and leave a legacy really for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, future generations, that's going to continue to enhance their lives um, and make them healthier, greener and safer places to be. When did Green Blue Urban form? Well, it actually all started with the CEO, Dean Bowie, who had a horticultural training and had his own business landscaping and tree planting. And in the late 80s, early 90s, he was noticing this significant difference in mortality rates, whether you're planting a tree in a hard area or actually planting it in a soft landscaped area, including one project that he had in about 1990, where we had a hot hot summer, and he was a danger of losing a lot of trees because of the drought. So he started looking into it, found that there was actually not that much research at that point on the urban forest. So he started working with universities and colleges to try and uh, ascertain the main reasons of of tree mortality. 
And that's when he started innovating products, started with irrigation systems, the famous Root Rain Metro. Um, and that's when he started the business, actually originally called Green Leaf. So it was 1992, they sold the first products. And after that, he actually sold his landscaping business and just concentrated on continuing research, develop and innovate ways to guarantee tree success. And there must have been a lot of barriers to people accepting this new way to begin with, because it seems quite strange to the uninitiated that you're planting trees in essentially plastic crates. So um, was it difficult for Dean to get that product to market? Very interesting um, story behind that, actually, because the, the idea of burying plastic is, you might say, counterintuitive when we're trying to think of growing something that's alive and green. But the whole story, the soil cell story, um, started in 2000 when Dean was actually over in Copenhagen with our European distributor. And they were saying how much they liked the products that we had, which didn't include soil cells, root management and root barriers, root directors, irrigation, underground going all the other tree products but they said the problem with them they said it's just a plant pot with an open bottom once the tree roots get to the edge of the root director where do they go the ground around it is so hard underneath the root director it's compacted so in effect the tree runs out of available volume and then dies off after four or five years because it's got nowhere to go so they said to Dean that what we want is to a way that you can invent a way the tree can access good soil volumes and that got Dean thinking Mm. now how can we create uncompacted decent soil volumes beneath a hard surface and at that time we were doing a landscape product called grass rings which was basically grass reinforcement tiles that you can actually park on or drive on and so he made did some little experiments in actually fixing these together in in a stack 250 mil high about 500 mil square and filling them with a very fine soil and what he found was that actually trees really grew well into it over less than a year the tree roots expanded into this this area of uncompacted soil even though it was paved over to him that proved the point that trees are very opportunistic in their rooting and if you provide them a good soil environment then the trees will grow into it. The idea was really quickly taken on by landscape architects and arborists because they understood the principle and what Dean often used to refer to as recreating the forest floor environment beneath hard paving and that began to make sense. The problems that we have had up till recently are more the fact that the contractors say they don't like planting them like this. They just want to dunk, dig, dig in the hole. We've been doing that for 30 years. Or the end clients who don't see the added value because they haven't got a long in, long-term interest in the projects. Yes, that's so true. So um, I'm a big supporter of good underground crate systems. And in fact, carried out an experiment with Dean um, quite a few years ago now on scanning the roots of a London plane tree in Greenwich, which was the first tree that was planted with the underground crate system, and just seeing how far it had spread using tree root radar. And it was absolutely astonishing how much further the tree had rooted than you would expect underneath a compacted, busy pavement in London, and the tree was flourishing and there are countless examples of, you know, trees that have established really well. But we keep trying, well, designers, and um, because of lack of space, keep putting our trees in difficult situations and, and forgetting what's underground. And it is this problem of demonstrating value in the end. 
And you've been doing some work on that, haven't you, of a recent study with tree economics? That's right. We've been working with tree economics now for a number of years um, and doing cost-benefit analysis. And it's very clear that in not a long term, we're talking probably 15 years, and the value of a tree in a proper soil cell system will more than cover the costs of a tree over against a tree that may last five, six, seven years and be replaced and five, six, seven years and have to be replaced again. Partly because of the cost of replacement, but more because of you never achieve the benefits from a tree that keeps dying that you would from a live, healthy tree. When we look at benefits from trees, we, whether it's an urban tree or actually a tree in the country, the benefits are totally correlated to our leaf surface area. What they say is a 100-year-old tree is vastly worth more than 52-year-old trees. Yeah, I had this conversation yesterday on a highway site where they've got to do some new highway works and they were saying, well, we can just fell this 100-year oak tree and replace it with one tree. And I almost jumped up and down on the spot, but I was far too professional. I said, no, even if you planted 50 trees, it's not the same. Exactly. And what we find is that because trees are not maintained in the way that they should be, often they get damaged and they never actually fulfil their potential. And the other thing that we often find when this argument's put forward to, we'll take out that tree, we'll plant a couple of others, is we take out a large species tree, maybe a phagus, maybe a quercus, and we plant a pyrochanticleer, which with the best one in the world is never going to give us the benefits of those large, mature English trees that we, that we know and we love. And it's about the below ground effect that has as well with all the soil fauna, mycorrhizae, all the carbon stored underground. It's all those other benefits that also aren't considered as well as the above ground benefits. So actually what we're saying here is planting your new tree right in the first place is a really sustainable answer. So describe to the listener who may not be familiar with your products what the soil cells look like and how they now integrate with sustainable urban drainage. I mentioned the whole soil cell story before, how it actually started, so that after the first couple of years of using the grass ring products, um, actually the first dedicated soil cell designed for that purpose um, was moulded here in the UK. Um, And that was, in effect, like a stack of tubes that actually connected together a bit like landscapers Lego. Green Blue have always made sure their soil cells are fully interconnecting in every plane, which is really important when we're looking at it from lateral as well as vertical loadings. And when we're looking at dynamic loadings, apart from just static loadings. So the idea of it, in effect, it's a cage for soil. All it is, is principally there for the soil to keep that soil from becoming too compacted and to stop it actually becoming anaerobic. The latest cell is the root space cell, which is a panel system. So in effect, it has side panels, um, four side panels and an aeration lid. And then the next one, of course, got three side panels as you gradually build up the the whole pack. But the, the unique thing about it is the aeration deck. And that means that right across the whole of the soil area, you've got a, just a gentle movement of oxygen. It goes right throughout the cell lids. And what you do is you just get a gentle percolation of that air, removing our um, methanes, carbon dioxide, other gases, which are a byproduct of the breakdown of soil, and actually draws oxygen in. So what you're getting is this very gentle aeration feed through the whole of the soil so you don't get this Tupperware soil and Tupperware box effect but what we're actually getting is keeping that soil alive. 
if we keep the soil alive, the soil keeps the tree alive. Yes, that is a principle, isn't it? Uh, healthy soils mean healthy trees and healthy planet, actually. Are they difficult to install? No, they're very, very simple to install. Green Blue Urban likes to give a first tree pit installation visit free of charge to every site to make sure there aren't any queries on it. But there are installation videos available on the web and actually on our own website to actually find out how that goes together in the simplest way. There is a geotextile grid that goes underneath and up the sides of the tree pit. Um, and then the panels are slotted together um, to fill out the space. Um, and the lids are then put on around the perimeter. The side geogrid is tied to the panels. Then we backfill around the edge with a stone. And then we infill in the center with the soil. And then we put the lids on and the root management. So very, very simple to do. And what type of soil um, are you putting inside? So do you incorporate things like biochar or is it down to the landscape architect specification? We don't actually specify anything particularly. We say a good, healthy soil. If there's soil on site that actually meets the, the British regulations for soil and on-site soil usually has enough um, microbiology actually in it already. So you don't have to put inoculants or anything extra into there. What we do say is that if you're using a manufactured topsoil, and particularly if you're planting bare root trees, you will need some form of inoculant. And we, we do a mycorrhizal inoculant called Root Start, which just helps the tree assist it in that early establishment phase to actually take up the nutrients in the best way. But good soil shouldn't need it. I'm just reading Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake at the moment about the absolutely critical importance of soil health and mycorrhizae. Fascinating. One of the other things that soil cells can do is they can help feed in services. How does that work? Is that new services or existing services? Can you design around, say, um, existing underground services? Because that's a really common problem for my projects. Every project we have, pretty much, we have to integrate services around it. It is unfortunately a fact of living in a first world country that underneath our paving and roadway is a labyrinth of, of different services. And some of them are very, very old. With the panel system, it's very simple to work around them. It's not at all difficult. We can actually just slot them around. And there are often things like easements or, or um, agreements that have to be sought from the utility providers. We identify what's at risk and we make sure that we protect that with the use of root management and with the use of root baiting. So encouraging trees to root away from those sensitive areas. It's a bit of a, a dual idea. And what we found is that trees that have adequate rooting um, volumes would tend to actually accept that rather than going looking for other areas that were perhaps more difficult to access. We've never had a situation where having done a tree pit correctly with soil cells and with root management, there have ever been any utility ingress. So I love the phrase root baiting. I've often thought, well, how can I describe that? I want to encourage your roots to go in a certain way. Tell us about how you do that. Well, I just say trees are, are, are like me, Sharon. Tree roots, naturally, they go the easiest route to food and drink. <laughs> so what we have to do is we have to provide that for them in such a way that the roots will tend to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Normally speaking, when trees root, um, they will actually root very superficially. Um, trees are often established within that top 300 of topsoil. So what, what we're doing is we're trying to actually artificially get them to grow deeper 
and then towards the area of good available nutrient and water. Tree roots actually can sense the running of water beneath ground, which is why sometimes you get the tree roots growing into old clay drains and things. It is quite phenomenal how tree roots can actually find that. Um, but what we do is we try and make sure that well, the tree has had adequate rooting volume, so it's not actually attempting to go in directions we don't want it to. Normally speaking, a tree will actually root pretty symmetrically. Um, but sometimes we actually have to tweak that. We have to actually get it to grow slightly more one way than the other to cope with the utilities. But interestingly, in test results that we've seen, it seems that trees that are limited in their ability to root laterally will actually tend to root a bit deeper so that they still have that structural stability. They don't blow over in the wind. And how do you calculate the rooting volume? There's been a number of different studies from all around the world, different universities and colleges. There's eight different ones we refer to to work out rooting volumes. And we've taken an average of that, which works out approximately 0.6 times the plan area, canopy area of the tree. Um, and that gives you an approximate volume. Now, it's quite interesting because it's slightly subjective. Um, a lot of the studies are actually worked on the volume of water that that tree will need and how much water can be held within a pit. We've actually learned over the years that some trees are more nutrient hungry than other trees. So some trees, for example, the London Plain that we've meant, you mentioned before, we know because that's a large leafed, large tree, that actually does need more water and more nutrient to sustain that canopy than perhaps something like a birch, which is actually a smaller leaf tree. Even if the trees are actually the same physical size, we'll find that the, the plane will require more nutrient. So it's little knowledge, knowledge like that that actually helps us understand it. In fact, we did some work um, in collaboration with you on looking at some of the very early suspended pavements in London put in by the Victorians, which is in Dr. Mark Johnson's fabulous book, Street Trees of Great Britain. Often people say, well, look at these London plane trees that were planted you know, over 100, 150 years old. Where are they rooting? Well, there were a few cases where they had these suspended pavements, which is a sort of early forerunner, really, of, of what you do now, providing that rooting volume and opportunities for aeration and water. But uh, as you say, roots are very opportunistic. Green Blue Urban um, have the whole arbor flow range of products to enable trees to be part of a sustainable drainage system. Of course. We really got into this because we realised that trees are a sustainable drainage system in their own right. When we start looking at those four pillars of sustainable drainage, and we're talking about water quantity, water quality, amenity and biodiversity, trees do that all naturally. The amount of water they can actually draw out of the ground is phenomenal. You can put filthy polluted water into a tree pit and yet it will evapotranspire pure water out of it. And even down to a micro scale or a small scale, just around the corner from where I live in Kent, a farmer used to have an orchard and he took away that orchard because he returned it back to arable. And we've had flooding problems on that road ever since. You might say it's still a greenfield site, but what's changed? There's no more tree canopy and there's no more tree water draw. 
So there's nothing that's actually stopping that water run off the field. It might be only a small change, but it can have very, very big consequences. So what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything new in the pipeline that you can publicly share? We have actually done for many years now green wall wire climbing systems to enable vertical walls and sometimes even horizontal walls to be greened up because we know we can't get trees everywhere. It's not actually feasibly possible. And integrating wire climbing systems, so we're getting plants to climb up vertical walls and actually growing in um, the hydroplanter, which is a new product that we launched this year, which is a, a modular plug and play rain garden. So we're actually dealing with our water runoff at the same time greening up our buildings, which gives us those amenity values, gives us that biodiversity, gives us the heat insulation, gives us noise attenuation. There's so much that greening our urban space can do. So that's something we're working on right at the moment. We're looking at the possibility of using trees to be active air cleaners, a very interesting way forward to whether we can get our urban trees to actually deal with some of our air quality issues, because it's a, it's a problem that's not actually going to go away. We're getting rid of petrol and diesel cars in 10 years, but that's not going to solve all of our air pollution issues, unfortunately. And then working with um, other groups such as TDAG and the Landscape Institute, our Boricultural Association, to try and raise the understanding of trees and the value of them in the general public's eye. We tend to think of trees as something that's there and we like to see them and the birds like them, but actually they are an active part of our ecosystem and do a lot more than we actually realise and are worth more than we actually have understood. That's a very good point. We're all working on that, aren't we, within the industry to get the word out there but I understand that you carry out a lot of presentations presumably to lots of other disciplines that wouldn't ordinarily think of trees as being a solution is that right? Yeah there's some really amazing people out there who are doing amazing things and we're glad to be part of it but when we start talking to architects and we start talking to engineers, um, civil engineers, structural engineers, designers, master planners and start talking about getting your green infrastructure in really early on in a project because that is the best way to actually ring fence it and make sure it's still there at the end. Too often we find a lot of the landscape elements are something that gets put in to get maybe to achieve planning permission and then gets value engineered very quickly. Mm. Green Blue Urban have a real problem with those two words, value engineering. Of course you do. And that's been my experience where I've worked on projects as an aboriculturalist and really pleased to see, you know, products, uh, soil cells specified and then they're value engineered out. And, you know, we have a really hard time to explain why it's absolutely essential and it's about taking that longer view. Absolutely. At Green Blue Urban, we spell value engineering as cost deferral kicking the can down the road and let it be somebody else's problem when the tree dies. And this is why we feel that landscape and tree planting should actually be moving up the hierarchy of design. It should be an integral part of sustainable and resilient design. I, I think it's going to. And I can think of my own workload right now where calculating the ecosystem services of trees that are lost and trees that are going to be planted is going to be right up there as more and more local authorities set carbon targets say for the next 10 years and you know they've got to achieve equivalent levels or improve net zero trees are part of that and so um, I think it's going to happen whether people like it or not and that's a really positive thing.
So, Howard, one of the questions that's on my mind is, and these, we're all trying to reduce the amount of plastic that we put into the environment, and yet you're planting plastic crates. How does that work? Thank you very much indeed for asking that, Sharon. That's a brilliant point. I wanted to come back to that because you mentioned this earlier on in the interview. We look at this slightly differently. All our below ground products are made from 100% recycled plastic. We don't use any virgin plastics in our below ground products. But when we've got plastic that's going to be thrown away, what's the best thing to do with it? Normally speaking, there's two options. Either it goes into landfill or it goes for incineration. Now, neither of those are doing anything for us. You might get a bit of power, I suppose, from from an incinerator, but it's not doing anything for us. What we say is let's reuse that plastic in a way that's really going to benefit the whole world economy. That's going to really benefit um, our green infrastructure. So we're using old throwaway plastic to grow great trees. And we've just launched our new range of root space ocean, which is actually reclaimed marine plastics. Old nets and ropes and things that otherwise would be normally just dumped at sea, we're actually having those remanufactured into root space. It's slightly more expensive, but it is what we believe the the circular economy, because we say to people that if you don't need it, send all those plastic parts back to us and we will recycle them again back into new products. Because the quality of plastic we use is good, so good that it can be recycled five times before it loses any structural integrity. Wow, what a great answer. I'm glad I asked. I thought it might be controversial and it absolutely is not. That's fantastic. Green Blue Urban, Green Blue Urban is actually unique in the world for making its products from recycled plastic. Nobody else uses 100% recycled at all. So that is unique. Um, and it's made here in the UK. In fact, we invite anybody to come and see us, come and see our manufacturing plant down near Hastings. Come and see us. Oh, that's brilliant. But you don't just operate in the UK. I understand you carry out a lot of work in North America. Yes, we have two offices in North America, one in Canada and one in the States. We have an office in Madrid um, and we have distributors in France and Germany and in Poland and in Scandinavia and in uh, Latvia and in Greece and sister companies we work with in Australia and New Zealand. We try as far as possible to set up manufacturing plants in the countries where we actually distribute from. As far as possible, we set up manufacturing as close to the area where we can actually install the products. And employ local people to do local jobs. Employ local people, absolutely, using as far as you can local materials. Really interesting. That's fantastic. What's happening above ground? Because there's been some real problems in the past with tree grills, being bent or tree ties not being removed and and stakes rubbing against a tree is still a massive issue isn't it with sort of post planting maintenance maintenance is critical a well planted well maintained tree is low maintenance a poorly planted poorly maintained tree is a liability so what we would say to people is please look out for your trees that's up to everybody everybody who walks past a tree if that tree tie is looking as though it's beginning to strangle it take it off we need to think of the whole street scene and we're becoming very aware that many of our streets are becoming very busy with street furniture and trees and parking meters and all the other things that we find in our streets and what we at green blue urban are trying to look is to consolidate that so when we're thinking of putting a tree perhaps a new tree planting scheme why don't we um, actually link it in with electric vehicle charging 
and we're working with some local authorities to do what we call arbitrage, which is an integrated system. So what we're doing is we're going to run internet and electric vehicle charging up the street. So at each build out tree, there'll be a car charging point. And then underneath the tree, we'll have a SUD system. We're actually touching on many of the points which local authorities are trying to do. EV charging is, is a current issue. We also get the matter of trying to take water out of our combined sewers, so it ticks the suds box. Local authorities actually having issued climate change emergencies, so we're actually talking about increasing canopy cover and biodiversity in our streets. And we're doing this within one hole in the ground. And I think that this idea of working collaboratively is going to be the future for pretty much all our jobs. In the UK, we have been very siloed in our attitude. We have one guy that does the engineering. We have one guy that does the tree. We have one guy um, that does the drainage. And we don't even talk to each other. And we end up doing our own designs. And we need to actually think about this in a far more logical way. Why don't we do it so that we can get a lovely tree growing to shade the cars from these hotter summers? Cars can charge. There's a drainage provision there to take water out of our car combined storm. So the whole thing is a far more logical progression. And we're even looking at actually incorporating within this some measures and um, sensors, perhaps to air pollution, um, sensors to actually build in there with our five provision. So we believe above ground protection is actually something that's going to evolve from just being a tree grill or a tree guard to actually being perhaps involved in charging potential for your mobile phone, possibly having sensors for soil or water or air sensors. We're even just about to roll out a range of retrofit seating that can go around our existing tree guards. The more we can actually get a tree to be central to provision in the high streets in, 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 our, in our towns and cities that actually we'll find that a lot of other things can hang on it. How exciting. And my mind is buzzing with other opportunities as well for that. And the fact that you can work around existing services most of the time is also really encouraging. Finally, I ask everybody, what is their dream scenario? In terms of my work and in terms of my passion for urban trees, I would like to see many of our existing um, high streets to be pedestrianised and actually covered in tree canopy. What we find is that when we start bringing up tree canopy levels, we have a reduction in crime, we have an increase in um, social activity, we have an increase in footfall to shops, people stay longer, they spend more money, and what's more, they're healthier places. Now, I understand the realities of this. We have to have deliveries, we have to have emergency vehicle access, but we have worked with a number of local authorities and municipalities in making shared space schemes Teams, areas which are principally there for pedestrians but have other access provision and they have become highly successful places and they've actually turned into real social hubs and I think the future is going to be that people will drive their cars into town to charge them at fast charging points and they'll want to go for a coffee or read a paper or something while that's happening. I think this is going to become more like that for electric vehicle charging, where we're going to need to put areas where people actually want to be whilst they are having their vehicle charged. So that's my dream scenario in which we we almost rewild our high streets. Oh, I love that. And that chimes with some earlier Tree Lady Talks podcasts as well. And we're going to need to do something with our high streets, sadly, given the closure of many shops. So... Um, we need to rebrand it and make it an exciting pace for people and nature. 
and and commerce too. So um, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. And what's the website, please? Greenblue.com. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon. Well, that was really interesting about the recyclable plastic because I was actually actually quite worried for Howard when you asked him about uh, the soil cells that they dug into the ground and whether they were recyclable. Uh, but I thought he dug himself out of a hole really well then. Da, da, da. That's a Christmas joke, folks. Yeah, it's really great. They're taking plastic from the ocean and it's a real circular economy. Building them locally, using local people. I really like the ethics of that as well as what they're actually achieving as well. And this one thing you don't hear about on TV programs, you never see a TV program saying, and we know about a company that actually recycles plastics from the sea into making these tree containers. I know. It was really interesting. I loved it. So so good for them. I think that's brilliant. Howard comes across absolutely brilliantly. He's a great advocate for what he does and uh, promoting his company. And Green Blue Urban have their own webinars available. If you go to their website, greenblue.com, you can see all of the webinars they've produced this year. And it's really worth watching them, except for the one with me in it. Okay, so uh, they think it's all over. It's not actually because we've got an even bigger one coming. I can't believe I'm saying this. We've got an even bigger one coming up, and it's all to do with uh, the trees, people, and built environment for the online conference that was going to be live but can't be. Um, Sharon, tell us about it. Next Friday, we normally put our podcasts out on Thursday at midnight, but. I think we might be busy next Friday. Oh, what are we doing next Friday? Christmas Day, isn't it? Soon there will be an interview with Yvonne Lynch and we had the most incredible conversation about how people were emailing their favourite trees, not just in the city of Melbourne, but from all over the world and, and how that cuts across all the science and all what we know about what trees provide for us and go straight into the hearts of people and also her work in greening Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and all the practice of that wow I really love talking to Yvonne and she's going to be one of the keynote speakers so watch out for that plenty more to come and happy happy Christmas Christmas, everybody and it's just time for me to say we're doing a highlight show Honestly, we are doing a highlight show. Now, there may be a few surprises in it, so if you've appeared in any of these podcasts, do listen out for it, because it's going to be hilarious. We're all going to go on a big virtual dinner, so you will hear yourself there. I expect everybody to turn up and be nice, and don't drink too much, and socially distance yourself, and do all the hands, face, space stuff. If you're feeling rotten, maybe you've forgotten to listen to a tree lady talk. And uh, we will see you on the other side. But thank you very much again. Say goodnight, Sharon. It's goodnight from me. And it's goodnight from him. And uh, just one triangle. Oh, go on then. Yeah!